You're listening to locally produced programming created in KUNV Studios on public radio, KUNV 91.5. You're listening to special programming sponsored by Making Moves Life Coaching Services. The content of Veterans Affairs Plus does not reflect the views or opinions of Public Radio KUNV, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, or the Board of Regents of the Nevada System of Higher Education. Good morning, Las Vegas. This is Veterans Affairs Plus on 91.5 Jazz and More. I'm Dave Washington, your host. We have a a good friend of mine who will be our guest uh, in the start of this show in just a moment. First of all, I'd like to encourage uh, you firefighters out there who have not attended the Carl Holmes Executive Development Institute down at Dillard University to check us out. We are a five-year program that deals with management and leadership training for fire service professionals. Uh, Last week we had Brother Yusuf and Rudolph Muhammad on and talked about disaster awareness preparedness for community. I will get further information on their show uh, so you guys can check it out because it's some very important information that they share with respect to us being prepared for any disaster that may hit. And we know that they are different types of disasters, whether they're man-made or from God himself or herself, uh, that happens um, throughout the years. So we want to be prepared. And also I encourage our our listening audience to participate in 91.5 Jazz and Moore's Spring Membership Drive. In fact, this week I hung out with John Nash and uh, the morning guy, and we had a great time. We raised uh, the necessary funds to meet his goal for that particular day. So thank you all for participating. And I want to share that uh, our brother Tony Marshall has had some dental work done, so he's not been taking any um, any appointments lately. So just hang on. He should be back up and running another few weeks. So we appreciate Tony for the work that he does for our community with respect to giving those needs and uh, that information to veterans who are in need. With that, I'm going to introduce our guest, uh, Mr. Frank Hawkins, owner of a couple of dispensaries in town and a and a, what I call a grow house, but his professional term is cultivation. Mr. Frank Hawkins. <laughs> Good morning, Brother Washington. Good yes. afternoon. How are you? I am well. I am well, Hawk. I wanted you to get you on, Frank, to give us an update because I know you're a busy man. You always got stuff going on. So could you give us an update on the status of the consumption lounge? What's going on? Because people ask me because they know I drive that van for you. And they're, well, when, when are they coming? When are they coming? I said, well, soon, I suspect. Please right. give us an update. Right. Okay, so I'm, I've done this show enough times. I'm going to give you a little update on three or four different areas. But Great. the first area would deal with marijuana okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, or cannabis. So. Right. For the old school folks, we called it marijuana or weed, but the new technical professional, uh, yuppie, uh, zen <laughs> or whatever name now is cannabis. 
You got so my engineer. Update on cannabis Frank, in Nevada. Frank, you got my engineer. He's cracking up on your t- yeah. on the term. So, can- so the so consumption <laughs> lounge is first. Mm-hmm. So as you know, the the state of Nevada four or five years ago, maybe yeah, somewhere around there, said the legislature said we don't have anything to do with that. That's up to the local governments to uh, approve award those licenses. And then when the past governor, Sisolak, was in office, he put a moratorium in place that lasted for two years, which was would have uh, expired in the last session had the legislature not came out with new rules and regulations, which they did. So the new rules and regulations were then sent to the Cannabis Control Board for them to create regulations from the laws that the legislature had passed. That took over a year. They finally got the regulations done. Then they came out about in January, February with an application period. So that period was for folks who wanted to apply for independent licenses and or apply for social equity licenses where the real focus because there aren't very many minorities, uh, African-American, Hispanics, other ethnic minorities in the business. Exactly, it's less than 1%. So um, the consumption lounge was supposed to be a measure to help to uh, diversify the industry. So the uh, licenses were, were, the applications were issued and they got responses back. It's my understanding that they are still still trying to uh, work their way through the applications and may have to extend uh, some of the requirements and timeline. Other than that, I would suspect uh, you might see, other than the Indian uh, uh, consumption lounge, because it's on the Indian reservation, it's probably going to be towards the end of the year or early uh, next year before you see enough of them in the industry that uh, take shape in order to make an impact. And this is uh, applies to the entire state. So there's 10 of the social equity licenses and approximately uh, 10 of the independent licenses. And then all of the licenses where folks by law were grandfathered in because they met all the requirements. So I suspect before the end of this year, you'll see a consumption lounge operating. Now, the good news for buyers of uh, cannabis, mm-hmm. well, right, mm-hmm. uh, is that cannabis prices are down. Mm. Gasoline is up. <laughs> uh, groceries are up. Cigarettes is up. Liquor is up. Drinks is up. Water is up. Cannabis is down. Okay. Marijuana is down. Weed is down. That's good for the folks who are using this recreational, also good for the folks who are using it for medicinal reasons. Wow. Why it's down, I think, because folks are having to make choices. Mm-hmm. Do I put gas in my car? Do uh-huh. I pay my rent, which is increased? Um, so the fact that the market is down is good for business. However, the biggest holiday of the year for cannabis, weed, or marijuana is coming on 420. So you'll see sales all over the valley, all over the state, <laughs> Uh, at your local dispensary, rewarding the customer for being a customer. Uh, oh. I know that we have so many specials 
in deep, deep discounts. <laughs> Buying one, get one free, uh, all kinds. You can go to our website at www.NevadaWellnessCenters.com and see all of our our promotions, and we'll have more coming as we get closer to 420, mm-hmm. which is going to happen in two days. So right. plenty of specials. So, Frank. One other, two other things I want to share. I know you got questions to ask me, but I do. we are also building some new, much-needed affordable housing. One of my other companies, Community Development Programs in Nevada, which you are the board chair of, uh, we are building a total of 150 units for 40 eight in this first phase, which should break ground in the next 60 days. And this time next year, we open and leasing up uh, new one and two bedroom uh, units for individuals or small families. And then this next one is not, I don't want to tell, talk about, but I need <laughs> to talk about because we've had two scam attempts at our dispensaries. One of the scams is that some people call you, they tell you your owner or fellow employee or a, <laughs> member of your family is in jail mm-hmm. and this person acts like they're from the sheriff's office right. or the constable's office and they want you to send them cash or meet them and give them cash and they will not uh, process the person and put them in jail. That's a scam. We've had two of them happen. Second second one, and it happened late at night or uh-huh. early in the morning when you can't reach people. Wow. The second one, a guy called in and acting as the owner, acting as me, <laughs> telling another employee to take money out of the drawer and take it to a certain place and drop it off. Again, scam. So I want your listeners to be aware because if it's happening to the businesses, you know they're calling folks at home and trying to hustle money out of them. And with that, that is my update, Mr. Washington. I'd be more than happy to answer any questions. Well, certainly thank you for sharing that on the scam deal because I did see something on the news the other day, and they were talking about how uh, people were acting like police or the sheriff and trying to get money out of folks. And you can imagine, and I am a senior citizen myself, that some who may not be in the right frame of mind are giving up money to these idiots, man, who are out there hustling folks. That is shameful. But I know they don't care. When you're a crook, you're just a crook. But I want to go back, Frank, to the consumption lounge. And you, you mentioned um, the special, I guess, application process for those who these folks may have been what uh, arrested or spent some time for for use of of, of cannabis in the past and they yes. get a so give a little bit more detail so, on that if you would yeah so so the whole issue about not being a diverse industry mm-hmm. meaning that it's a white male dominated industry okay um the, the state's been under lots of pressure for lots of years to try to diversify the industry. So they were going to use this consumption lounge uh, concept uh, to try to uh, diversify the industry because it wasn't going to cost, the goal it was, it wasn't going to cost multiple millions of dollars to get your doors open. Um, so folks are, one of the requirements that I like from the CCB is that because of social equity, social equity means you qualify either by growing up in certain census tracts, low-income census tracts, or a family member, and this got expanded. It used to be you would have to be a, the next felon out in good uh, standing, right? Have your uh, have a job, be able to uh, be, uh, apply because of your felon status 
because you went to prison for marijuana or marijuana related, right, then that would give you certain points. They expanded that to say that that's still the case, but if members of your family were in the household, a mother, a brother, a sister, a nephew, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, that would make them qualified as well to get the same points. So, so they tried to make the pool wider and deeper. I'm not sure that happened. We'll see at the end of the day. But supposedly, of the 10 licenses, and I can't confirm, this is all hearsay right now, what I'm about to say, is that the vast majority went to people of color. Now, don't know what that means because I haven't seen him. I've seen one guy on the news who said he had a license. He was an African-American, but the other nine, I have no idea. So at, at the end of the day, we will see if the marijuana industry cannabis industry is really going to be diversified through. Now, the other good thing is what I said earlier, that the social equity person, if they want to sell, they must sell to a social equity person. So that ensures that that license will always be social equity. So the big rich folks can't come in, put some money in, then buy you out. So you have to have 51%, which technically should mean that you should be operating and managing the process and the business, and nobody can push you out. However, you know, with uh, can't, um, uh, the laws, the good lawyers found a way to skirt the issue. But for the <laughs> practical purpose and the intent, mm-hmm. it was to ensure that once a, a social equity license is issued, it will always forever remain a social equity license. So this, this is the law, but it seems more like a pilot program to me because you really don't know what you're going to get. That's exactly right. And it costs money to open a lounge. So if you are a non-experienced or non-business person and you have an idea, but you have no capital, you have a problem. Right. You have a problem because you have no capital. You have a second problem because you don't have any experience. Right. You have to develop a team. So where does a guy with no experience and no money and not no experience in business go? Right. So all of that has to be washed out, mm-hmm. uh, flushed out through the CCB. That's, you know, their responsibility. Right. But that, that's why with the time frame they, that they were issued, you might see them expanding or giving more time because it, it, it isn't uh, as black as and white as was written. There's a lot more. The devil's always in the detail. Right. So what's the difference dollar wise, if you can even state that? with respect to a dispensary versus a consumption lounge dollar wise is there is it significantly different i would say yes uh your facility may not have to be as large mm-hmm. but let's say it costs 4 million dollars to open a dispensary <laughs> so the first thing that the the social equity person has to do is find a location right that has to be a thousand feet from a church school or park that's mm-hmm. hard to do mm-hmm. or another dispensary right, right? Mm-hmm. or a casino. Mm. So challenge number one. Challenge number two is getting a lease from that person that I'm going to lease to you who has no experience, mm-hmm. right? Who has no capital, mm-hmm. right? And, and trust that I'm going to get paid. Then you have to spend the money to build out the location, right? So that's going to cost. You can't get loans from banks or cannabis for the most part. And then if you do get a loan, the bank requires in standard commercial lending mm-hmm. an 80, 20, or 70, 30, which means that all, the bank will loan you 70% when 
if it costs you a hundred thousand, they're going to loan you seventy thousand. You're going to have to come up with thirty. You're mm. going to have to start paying interest when mm. they make you the loan, mm. and they'll give you a certain amount of time to pay back the principal. Right. right. So if you don't have that thirty percent or that twenty percent, then you're out. Now you got to go find somebody to stand in that has to be a part of your partnership, right? That can loan that money or come up with that money mm. and be have the expendable income to pay back the bank if the deal doesn't work. So mm. that's that's a lot to chew on right. for someone who does that not have any experience. Exactly. Besides all of the technical issues right. that must be met by the state law and the CCB regulations as it relates to building out that facility that is not within a thousand feet of a church school or park. Right. You know, Frank, I, I worked for government, as you know, for 33 years. And I try to be an optimist, but I'm skeptical because many of the things that you mentioned, you know, uh, lack of qualifications or experience to even deal with this type of industry, it's going to be hard to get people through that process, I believe. So that's why I mentioned that I, I, I view this as a pilot project on the outset and hopefully uh, some good things will come of it. It's a, it's a great idea, but if you have no experience, no money, I, I see it as just uh, window dressing, unfortunately. And I, I hope that don't be, the, please make me wrong government. Right. That's the goal, right? That's <laughs> right. Exactly right. Right. So uh, as we get ready to wind down again, talk about the housing a little bit more because I think it's important yeah. for people to be aware of that. Housing, through the ceiling, uh, there is always a need for affordable housing, especially in Las Vegas. Right. Uh, so we have been an affordable housing developer mm -hmm. for since 1997. So 20 plus years, uh, we've been building affordable housing in uh, the southern part of the great state of Nevada. So we just have another project starting in the city of Las Vegas on Decatur and, and, and another project in North Las Vegas, which is a rental project. I'd like to share, too, we were awarded a for-sale product that we're going to build in West Las Vegas. So if people are listening and they want to own a home, um, we'll probably be coming out. We'll come back and talk more about that in the next few months. But we've got to go through the entitlement process, talking to the neighbors, winning them over, then going to zoning, getting that done, then putting the, our loan package together. So that'll take us four or five months, then we'll be back to talk about some new home ownership opportunities that go along with our affordable rental housing opportunities as well. Is it is it too early to share any particular area? You mentioned West Las Vegas, but that's a broad general statement. Or, yeah. or is it too so, early yeah. because so you don't off of uh, so the rental will be off of uh, Decatur and Vegas Drive. Okay. With the old Wonder World if you've lived here in oh, yeah. amount of time. Oh yeah. And then in North Las Vegas it's off of Donna in North Fifth. Oh, yeah, North okay. Vegas, so that's out by the Air Force Base. Right. And then the the ownership opportunity is going to be off of Martin Luther King and between Washington and Vegas Drive. Oh, okay. I know the area. Cool. Well, well said, my friend, and uh, continue the good work. I think you're doing a tremendous job because one thing I know about Frank Hawkins, not only does he make money, but he hires a lot of people, and I think employing of, of people from our local area is very important to keep our economy on the move. So we appreciate that. That's another thing, Chief, I appreciate because we do, 
we have a, a, a requirement that all of our folks, uh, subcontractors, hire from the community. Oh, excellent. And that, that, uh, that is good, and we have been committed to that since day one. Great. All right, Hawk, we appreciate your time, man. We'll get you back on for further updates. Keep doing the great work you're doing, my brother. Take care. Thank you very much. All right. Once again, good morning, Las Vegas. This is Veterans Affairs Plus on 91.5 Jazz and More. I'm Dave Washington, your host. We have our second guest, and I'm, I'm pleased to introduce and have her to give us an indication how long she's been here in Las Vegas and where is she from, Miss Deborah Green, Mrs. Deborah Green. Hey, Deborah. Hey, Dave. How you doing today? I am well. Where, where are you from, Deborah, and how long have you been in Las Vegas? Well, I am originally from Chicago, Chicago. and grew up, absolutely, <laughs> and grew up on the uh, west side during... My elementary days, mm -hmm. and my family moved to the south side um, when I was in middle school. Mm -hmm. But I remained at my middle school because that, that's a very transformational and transitional stage. So my mommy said, hey, no, you, you'll stay there. Mm -hmm. You're doing well. So <laughs> then I went to high school on the south side. Okay, great. Now, how long have you been in Las Vegas? I have been in Las Vegas since May of 2021, and um, yeah, May of 2021. Okay. I know that you are married to a dear friend of uh, myself and others here, a retired Army Captain Laban Green, and uh, share a few thoughts about your, your husband, if you would. And I, I, I can tell Hi. you that he helped us a lot when we ran a camp called Camp Brotherhood. He came up and spoke, and he really fired those young men and women up. So I appreciate him forever for that for that work that he did. Well, Laban Green was my first boyfriend, and mm. we grew up together in Chicago. Wow. So for me and for him, it's like a full circle, right? Six degrees of separation and back <laughs> at it. But um, my husband is a fantastic man and gentleman, and when we were growing up, he always wanted to serve. He always wanted to be in the armed forces, mm. Dave. And mm -hmm. so for me, I always wanted to go uh, towards a, a medical profession okay. and ended up going towards business. And mm -hmm. so uh, Laban and I reconnected mm -hmm. in 2020, mm -hmm. and our love and our bond was strong enough for me to say yes. Oh, great. I will marry Wonderful. you and move to Las Vegas, Nevada. Cool, cool. So you mentioned your career. You say you were in the medical business field. Please give us a little so, indication in depth about that, as well as how long have you done that? Okay. So what I ended up doing was foregoing med school, got married, had two beautiful children, and uh, together, Laban and I have three fantastic kids and five grandchildren. So for me, my career path took me on a lot of different places, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. I worked for the number one property and casualty company in the U.S. and uh, became a leader with State Farm Insurance. And at that point, the work that I was doing um, with that company was very impactful. And so having lived in multiple states, having 
led people across multiple states and at some point Canada before we stopped uh, doing business there. So I fell in love, Dave, with developing people. And so I was presented with an opportunity and a blank piece of paper to create an enterprise development program. And that's what I did for uh, 36 years. I was with State Farm Insurance and uh, lived, yeah, so started in Chicago, moved to Bloomington, Illinois, from there to Minnesota, from Minnesota to Dallas, from Dallas to Austin, from Austin to Phoenix, and from Phoenix to Las Vegas. Now you say, so you were developing their the State Farm's uh, employees? Absolute leaders and employees, all levels, all levels, and across multiple operations. So at the enterprise level, I had to work with individuals in tech. I had to work with individuals in the service and customer services side, the financial services side. Uh, We had a bank at the time. So there were a variety of experiences that I got. And when I got the call to create something for what they were doing in a virtual environment, it became pretty exciting to me. So I got a chance to create that and served 6,500 folk every day. Now tell me, in fact, I, you know, I, I run a program out of Dillard University. In fact, uh, one of our speakers this year, I didn't learn until later, but he wants to do virtual. And then one of my directors is giving me a little bit of pushback saying, you know, because in our what we call evening sessions, you have about, it can be anywhere from 150 to, to 300 people, students, if mm-hmm. you will. And she just thinks that it's going to be hard to maintain their interest with someone on a screen. And I'm like, well, first of all, I think that the, the topic will be important. And also, I'm thinking about maybe only having this person to present like 30 minutes and, and now now I'm kind of asking you to help me out if you will and, and then and then have and then, and then have a panel discussion after the presentation with with with, with some of the folks some of the leaders from our group you know sure sure and that is very possible mm-hmm. i think people get afraid you know covid brought about how should we say the fear of using media and technology to interact. So before COVID, I was virtual and dispersed. And so for me, it became a part of what I ended up doing. When I retired, I launched a company uh, called Coco 365, which is a performance and cognitively based company. In other words, how do people learn? How can we make people uh, optimally perform, whether they're at work, at home, or at school? And so for me, virtual was a way of life. And people aren't familiar with all the tools. So there are two. So virtual. A lot of tools. So virtual, you was doing it before COVID, pretty much. Way before COVID. Okay. Yes. So you're not afraid of it. I started doing virtual in 2000. Wow. That's interesting, Paul. You know, some folks, it, it seems to be something that we've had to finally adapt to, but you were already doing it before it even hit. Yeah, my company took off, took right. off during COVID because I could teach teachers right. how to use right. virtual technology. I could teach businesses, small businesses and medium businesses uh-huh. how to do it and yes. not skip a beat. Large corporations already had it, already had the technology, and most people don't think about that. You know, when I was serving as fire chief, 
I asked my boss because I, I just knew about this thing called executive coaching. And I asked him, mm -hmm. you know, were you familiar with it? Dr. Silver said, yeah, I'm familiar with it. I said, well, you know, government don't use a lot of it, but mostly private industry. I'd like you to consider allowing me to have some of my, to include myself, uh, some of us coached by executive coaches. I say because the difference between, there's a, a certain amount of money that can be saved where if you travel away versus getting a person that's in your city that, that, that does professional coaching, and he said, yeah, that makes sense. So he allowed me to have some of my executive uh, level persons, including me, coach. But anyway, I'm, I'm going to be picking your brain more about that. So I want to go to the next. Uh, well, you should, because, um, <laughs> by the way, I do have my International Coaching Federation certification. Oh, Lord. So, De absolutely. Deborah, what's, what's a favorite pastime for you? And then I got a couple other questions before we have some closing remarks from you, because time is really flying. Sure. Yes. What's no your, worries. What's the favorite you know, pastime? My pastimes, they music. Okay. Music, music. I can be seen probably at any concert, jazz festival, um, Smith Center. I prefer a smaller venue, mm -hmm. but I definitely am into my music. Great. I enjoy listening to it as well as dabbling in it a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the other thing Laban and I had in common. We played in the band together. Wow. Uh, growing up. Cool. So sports, mm -hmm. reading, family, hanging out with, with family and grandchildren, those mm -hmm. are my pastimes. Wow. Friends, good friends coming over Shoot. and playing games with them as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, there's something you're involved in uh, called Black Mother Form. Give us a little insight yes, on that as we're preparing to close out here. That'll be fantastic because that became my passion, as well as doing my own business with Coco. So my best friend, Janelle Wood, is the CEO and founder. And then together, we had made this organization something to behold. And so I would love for Las Vegas to have a similar experience where mothers and women come together and create a sisterhood around education and our children. We want the best for them. We got started by being advocates for our kids in schools, and we've heard some news over the last several weeks in Las Vegas that requires our mothers, grandmothers, sisters to get together and be strong advocates for our children. And so that's how we came to be. So four pillars, education, health, wellness, prayer, and safety. We have legislative, where we wrote legislative um, uh, policies and laws, and I We'll talk to you some other time about some of that legislation that impacts the, the uh, nation because I was an advisor to Congressman Gallego. And so the other uh, pillar that we have is economic development, and we think that's very important. Let me say this, Deborah. I definitely want to get you back on the show because I've, I've squeezed my time, and uh, you have so much information to share, and I want to get you back on. So I appreciate you coming on. And uh, I will certainly be in touch because I want to pick your brain on a number of things that I can hear <laughs> and know that you're well qualified. So thank you, Deborah. This is Veterans Affairs well, thank Plus. Thank you. Thank you're, you. And um, definitely support our veterans. For sure. This is Veterans Affairs right. Plus on 91.5. Jazz and Moore and Dave Washington will talk to you next week.
Yeah. 